0: We're in a traditional passage for Palm Sunday, Gospels, all four of them speak of the idea of laying palms at Jesus' feet as he rode a donkey in humility. A lot of you know that story. A lot of our culture knows that story, does it not? It's kind of calendared for us this Sunday and next, even in terms of television and sometimes movies or TV series, some TV series called Mary Magdalene that's out. Um, There's another one on the History Channel. I'm not getting paid to advertise. History Channel, Jesus, His Life. Um, I don't have anything for or against these. I just am making note that these are in our culture. Jesus in many ways, he he passes by once a year, doesn't he? According to the History Channel, there, uh, Jesus, his life, this Easter, explore the story of Jesus Christ like never before with the four part series. Jesus's life, this mini-series, will dive deeper into the life of our Savior. Each of the eight chapters is told from the perspective of different biblical figures, all of whom played a pivotal role in Jesus' life. Each figure will take a turn sharing the emotional and epic story of the most famous man in history. That's an interesting statement from the culture, the most famous man in history. Surely this isn't just marketing, right? They're tapping into something that people deep down kind of believe most famous man in history. The timeline will travel through his birth, death and resurrection, which, by the way, if you believe that biblically saves you for all of eternity. But historically, birth, death and resurrection, utilizing both scripted drama and interviews with prominent religious and historical experts. I didn't look up who the experts are. Sometimes they actually have very good experts. So again, I'm not trying to say don't watch a movie or a play regarding Jesus or Jesus Palm Sunday or Easter. But just hold it openly in terms of what it really is. Church attendance always grows around Easter time. And again I believe it's rooted in a a fascination with Jesus. People are fascinated with him and they should be. He is God, whether people truly embrace that or not, Jesus as fully human is God. That makes him fascinating. He was fascinating when he walked here on earth and thousands of years later he's still fascinating. He spoke, he taught, he did things, he endured. He's the ultimate in giving himself as a sacrifice, a sinless sacrifice. He's too compelling for the culture to wholesale ignore. In 2004, who remembers the movie directed by Mel Gibson, The Passion of the Christ? $600 million was gross from that movie. No play on words, but that movie was gross. Um, It it, it basically gave interest on a graphic R-rated level regarding the scourging and crucifixion of Christ and moved many to tears. And many applauded it as life-changing. It was suffering for sure in that movie. And it was playing on sentimentalism. I mean, people were very sentimentally drawn to think about Jesus. But I just want to put this out there. Sentimentalism and inspiration are emotional responses to who Jesus was and is. But sentimentalism and inspiration is not the same thing as saving faith. Be clear on that. Being moved emotionally about Jesus or knowing a lot about Jesus is not the same as knowing Jesus as Savior and as Lord. Mainstream interest in Jesus, it comes and goes like waves. But often the cultural tipping of the hat towards Christ is fickle. For instance, the Dalai Lama. The Tibetan Buddhist, he commented saying in my readings of the New Testament, I find myself inspired by Jesus acts of compassion, his miracle of the loaves and fishes, his healing, his teaching are all motivated by the desire to relieve suffering that too, the Dalai Lama, the Buddhist is inspiring. He's even conceding at some level, the miracle power of Jesus in his statement But that's not saving faith. It's not a rejection of false religion to follow Christ. Athletes, many who are regenerate and saved, they will give glory to Christ. And I always loved that. I loved when the Philadelphia Eagles, who are my arch nemesis in the NFL, uh, it's like they had a revival in their team year before last. It was amazing. I loved it. Didn't like the outcome of the year, but I loved what was going on in their hearts. But you have actors, actresses, politicians, many who will give some kind of courtesy nod towards Christ, but aren't necessarily saved. Inspiration never saves. Faith does. So what's the difference? We see the difference in Luke chapter 19, the difference between superficial and saving, the difference between inspiration and transformation. You see, we need to know and discern the difference so you can know if you truly worship Christ. When you cry, God save me, Hosanna in worship, is that saving to you? There's two kinds of worshipers that are presented in Jesus' triumphal entry. If you'll look at Luke 19, beginning at verse 28, two disciples serve the Lord. Verse 28, and when? He had said these things. He went on ahead going up to Jerusalem when he drew near to Beth page and Bethany at the Mount that is called Olivet, He sent two of the disciples. Stop there. This event is significant. It's recorded in all four gospels. Jesus ministry. That was a three-year ministry was now coming to the end. It's the final week. He's ministering on the outskirts of Jerusalem, and now he is bravely moving he and his disciples into Jerusalem, which is inside the city. He's moved from a public ministry out into the fields with the people, hillside teaching to a more private and personal ministry. It's very intentional here, going to Bethany and Bethpage, as you see noted, it's a Specific place that he's going to a place where he is familiar and known. He's choosing a humble animal in this area so that he can travel east on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem. It's been three years that Jesus has toggled back and forth between two primary regions. Do you know? Jerusalem and Galilee, some 80 miles walking distance between the two going back and forth. He encountered Satan in the wilderness and after was baptized by John in the river Jordan and then to Galilee and then to Jerusalem and then back again. Now this will be his final return. The break line, as it were, is cut. Cut. And he's moving towards Jerusalem, moving into danger, moving towards the cross, and there is now no turning back. One translation said his face is set like flint. He's going that way. This is Passover week, it's the Jewish month called Nisan, it's AD 30. It will take five chapters remaining in the gospel of Luke to explain this week and its significance in its fullness on Friday, good Friday, all of Israel would slay tens of thousands of Paschal or Passover lambs. None of which are saving sacrifices, but you have a lamb who is coming who is the ultimate fulfillment of every lamb that was ever sacrificed at Passover and the day of atonement. Every ceremonial lamb is fulfilled in this lamb, this offering. And Jesus knew going into Jerusalem was lethal. It meant danger. Mark 11 1 says he was going there because you have Mary, Martha, you have Lazarus, you have his people are there. He's pacing his exposure. He's syncing things up in the timetable of God's plan for him to be there as the sacrifice during Passover. So as he moves, he's ascending a road 3,300 feet, 17 miles toward the Mount Olivet. That's where he's going. Mount Olivet is adjacent to the temple in Jerusalem. It's the same mountain that Jesus ultimately will return when he comes back again. I take Zechariah 14, 4, literally that his feet, his literal feet will stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west. It's amazing. Very wide valley will be formed so that one half of the mount shall move Northward and the other, half southward, Zechariah 14:4. Four. Jesus is being delivered. He's not being haphazard. He's following the God, his father's timetable. He's fulfilling the Passover, ultimately, that had happened some 1,400 years earlier, where Israel was given an exodus from Egypt commemorating every lamb offering, every uncountable sacrifice. This is a busy time. It's a busy ceremonial season. And Jesus, in the midst of all this crowded busyness, selects two disciples. Now the contrast between wide mainstream mass inspiration and the specificity and personal nature of selecting individuals who are true followers should not be missed as you read through this narrative. It's a narrow road gospel, is it not? The evaluation of crowd size, meaning God's blessing, is obliterated here. True saving faith. He chose two. And he chose two to fulfill a very precise prophecy. Choosing two, verse 30, saying, Go into the village in front of you. Where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? you shall say this The Lord has need of it. Stop there. It's fulfilling. Something very precise, Zechariah nine nine, these are a few chapters earlier than what I read in Zechariah fourteen, says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, Behold your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This very prophecy has roots even in Genesis 49. It was a prophecy that was given from Israel or Jacob is his name, Jacob, the father, and you have the 12 sons and these 12 sons were the 12 who represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Remember the brothers that, took Joseph and threw him into a pit. Well, there is a admixture of blessing and cursing that Jacob gives over these brothers after Joseph had delivered them back in Egypt, delivering them from famine. Genesis 49, he's talking to Judah. He says, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck. This is Genesis 49, eight it should be on the neck of your enemies. Verse nine, Judah is a lion's cub for the prey. My son, verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. And then verse 11, binding his foal unto the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. The idea of the Messiah coming is rooted all the way back in Genesis. It's embedded in the subconsciousness of Israel if they would only see their humble king that was coming. So these two disciples go and then in verses 32 and following, you have two owners that are sacrificing their animal, not killing it, but giving it. Verse 32, so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. This is a nice, subtle way of seeing two people perhaps coming to faith in Christ. They own a donkey. They have the mother. They have the colt. And as the colt is untied. I think there is some untying of hearts in that moment. The cult is unhitched and the hearts of the owners, Mr. and Mrs. Owner are open. In fact, in Mark eleven three, it says that Jesus promises to send the cult back here immediately. It's going to return the animal. It's a little subtle word about seeds that are sown and watered. And groan there. It's the timely word. The Lord has need of it. There is the Lord is here. The Lord is on business. He's working. And oftentimes we underestimate our witness in the gospel by just saying the Lord has blessed me or the Lord has moved me in this or that. The Lord is working in my life. We remember the woman Lydia and her group that were selling um, their garments In Acts 16, and the Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what was being said. She was one of the persons in that party listening to Paul teach the Bible. You just never know. You never know who is overhearing a conversation about you talking about the Lord. You never know what you're doing or how God is using you. So then in verse 35, it goes on. Several disciples are set apart. They set apart the Lord. Now that's kind of a forced outline point, And I get that, but they literally set the Lord apart. What does that mean? We'll look back verse 35. They brought it, the cult to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the cult. They set Jesus on it. Literally, they set him apart. They lifted him on the colt. They realized that they were dealing with holiness here. They set the Lord apart. It takes humility to see glory in humility. Jesus was not going to be placed on a war horse, but a colt led by its mother. Jesus was set apart like temple furniture being set apart in the holy temple. Or the tomb that was set apart, that which had been owned by Joseph of Arimathea, Jesus was set apart in perfect, sinless perfection. I love this quote from Don Carson. Just put your listening ears on for a second. I think it's great. It's in a commentary on Matthew and says, Jesus is riding an unbroken animal. This is an animal that had never been ridden before. Ever. The text clearly says that. Never been ridden. You can't ride an animal before it's broken. Especially a baby donkey riding through a yelling crowd. Humanly speaking. No rider could do this. In the midst of this. An unbroken animal. Remains totally calm. Under the hands of the Messiah. Who controls nature. And stills the storm. This even points to the peace of the consummated kingdom. Jesus is the Lord of all and under his hand, nothing but harmony and peace comes about. The animal knows and loves his true master for he, for who he is. This is a foreshadowing of the healing and completion of all nature as found in Isaiah 11, the wolf shall, lo- shall live with the lamb. These are believers who are handling Jesus, who are sacrificing for Jesus, who are serving Jesus. And they are standing in contrast to the mob scene that ultimately praises Jesus, but is their praise genuine or is it superficial? Let's test it verse 35 they brought it to jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt on the colt they made a saddle for him they set jesus on it and as he rode along they spread their cloaks on the road. So he's on the road. Now they're throwing their cloaks down. They're sacrificing for Jesus. They're giving to Jesus. They're promoting him. They're creating a Royal carpet in absolute contrast to some kind of Hollywood red carpet. These are acts of humility and service. And then verse 37, as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Christ's exposure is swelling, momentum is building, humble acts are now creating euphoria and shouting. The crowd is growing in size and the worship of the crowd is perhaps less sincere. Mark 11 shows that the scene is building and the crowd begins to grow in size and in actions. Mark eleven eight, as many spread their cloaks on the road. So the others are beginning to do what the disciples were doing and others uh, spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. So they were, leaving, going into the field, cutting down leafy branches and throwing them down. Jesus is ascending 2,500 feet into Jerusalem, and people were shooting into uh, nearby fields, cutting leafy palm branches to join in. This backdrop seems regal, like in the times of Caesar, but kings would ride on a steed, not a colt. It was different, not a war horse. It was an animal of peace. In the Old Testament, Jehu, who has mixed reviews in terms of how he ruled in the Northern kingdom, he had this done for him. He rode on a colt or a donkey. He was Ahab's replacement, Second Kings 9.13. Solomon rode on a mule at his coronation. So there was precedent for this. But in the main, a king would ride on a steed. And even when Caesar was being Praised and lauded as the one who is the indomitable king and ruler. People waved palm branches for him. So there was some confusion as to really what was going on. Verse 37 says they were crying out with a loud voice, a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. It was loud. But their enthusiasm perhaps should be held with some suspicion because actions speak louder than words. And again, inspiration or being moved emotionally is not the same as saving faith. They were moved emotionally. They were there was a ruckus here. They were excited. They were quoting Scripture towards Jesus. In Mark's gospel, it says that they were saying Hosanna. Hosanna, which means God save us. So they're literally. Praising and praying to Jesus as he walks by. But in a week, their hosannas are going to turn into shouts of what? Crucify him. Palm branches for coronation are exchanged for thorns to create a crown for their king. Why does this group go astray? And I, looking at parallel texts, you can find some answers here. Verse 37 gives us a clue. It was for all the mighty works that they had seen. They had seen something that was amazing or they had heard of something. Something had fueled their enthusiasm. What were the works? Well, how about Lazarus being raised from death? If you'll turn over to John 12 verse 9, look at this. It says, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus. So they're going, Jesus is coming, but there's also the celebrity with Jesus, Lazarus, who was dead and was brought back to life. We want to see him too, whom he, Jesus, had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Did you catch that? The religious leaders are assassins. We're going to kill Jesus and we're going to kill Lazarus, who Jesus allegedly raised or raised with some sort of voodoo. And so we're going to just snuff this out because the crowds are turning to Jesus. Says so it's because on account of him, verse 11, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd had come to the feast and heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as is it written. And again, the quote from Zechariah. Verse 16, his disciples didn't understand these things. They were bewildered about what's going. On. Why are the crowds really going for Jesus now? It's been so spurious and up and down. What is, what is the big sort of effulgent, momentous occasion now around Jesus? What does this mean? Verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when, G, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb raised him from and raised him from d- the dead continued to bear witness so you have a crowd who actually saw lazarus before and then dead and then he's alive and so they're going look there is something going on with this guy he's amazing and so other people are going all right we want to see it we want to see the show so the pharisees well, verse 18, it says the, the, the reason why the crowd went to meet him, meaning those who saw Lazarus raised and then the building crowd around that. Um, they went out to meet him was they heard he had done this sign. This was a mighty work. So look at the Pharisees in verse 19. This is amazing. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. This is the Pharisees talking to each other, getting upset with each other. You see? It's not working. It's not working. The crowds are coming. You're gaining nothing. Look, the world, this is hyperbole. The world, everybody's coming. The world has gone out after him. Can you believe that? This is the world's evaluation on the church, the grading system of large crowds versus authenticity. I'm all about more people coming to hear the word of God, but not for mixed motivations the crowds were quoting the hillel psalms they're even quoting psalm 18 this is the day the lord has made let us rejoice and be glad in it save us we pray that's hosanna oh lord oh lord we pray give us success blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord we bless you from the house of the lord So, what's wrong with this? Well, you have to evaluate the heart of the matter. Verse 38 Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. It is coalescing with the Lord's timetable. They were waving palm branches, which originally was part of commemorating the Lord's deliverance of Israel through the wilderness. They would make lean tos, they would make tents with palm branches. But this crowd's worship was motivated by something different than a lamb sacrifice to take care of their greatest problem, which was their sin. They were trying to solve a different problem, a problem that's much more superficial. They were trying to solve their problem with being under Caesar. They were trying to solve a political problem, not a spiritual problem. You say, how dare they? Well, oftentimes that's what happens within the church. It's much easier to talk about political problems and trying to save America than really talk about problems that are upsetting and difficult, which are spiritual issues being saved from your sins. Just test that in your own mind. What's more difficult to talk about to someone around family supper, someone's sin issue or politics? Both are pretty violent sometimes. I get that. But that's where they were going. And the Pharisees were just trying to protect their position because they were politically safe under Caesar in their position at that time. And the crowd noise going after Jesus was going to interrupt their political position. It was going to interrupt their job security. So they wanted to snuff Jesus out quickly. They wanted a superficial fix. One person said it this way, instead of looking inward to their deepest need and then upward to their Messiah who had come to meet it, they looked outward at their political enemies and shouted, save us from Rome. They wanted their kingdom and they wanted it their way on their terms and they were filled with entitlement. Verse 39, the Pharisees censor the Lord, or they try to the Pharisees sidle up to Jesus. They're there and they're kind of going, going along the line here and whispering in Jesus ear saying, can you quiet the crowds? Can you quell this teacher rebuke your disciples? They're even using honoring language teacher. I mean, they're the ones that want to kill him, but teacher rabbi rebuke your disciples. Shut this down. Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Reference from Habakkuk 2.11. As I said before, the brake line had been cut. Jesus was on his way and there was no turning back. It's fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. But I want to also give a different idea here. Crowd worship is not all bad. There is some hope in going to church and worshiping the Lord and not necessarily knowing where you are spiritually. How many of you were saved from being in church where you weren't a Christian, but you were worshiping and you were sort of hearing the call of God from the outside because you're around worshipers. And then suddenly something happens on the inside and you begin to worship genuinely from the heart. Who would brave a raised hand in that way? I think a lot of times the influence of church is transforming, but the transformation has to come from the inside where God changes your heart, where you're regenerated by hearing the word of God, the lights turn on. You see Jesus for who he is and you begin to relate to Jesus Christ on a personal level. Church is now not religion, church is relationship. Church is not something you do, it's something that you are. Church is not something that you were raised in, it becomes your family. You see the difference? Church isn't just worshiping because it's part of the liturgy and it's the part of the worship schedule. It's something that you must do, you have to do. Worship isn't something you just do publicly it's also something that you carry home and do privately jesus is not just a historical figure he's not just a once a month pass through in hollywood tv or time life magazine jesus is your lord savior friend he's your god and he's the only true god Suddenly, politics are sublimated. Suddenly, your identity isn't politics. Your identity isn't race. Your identity is not your job. Your identity isn't who you know or who knows you. Your identity is not based on letters after your name. Your identity isn't some other form of superficial security. Your identity is Christ. That's why Christians are called Christians, followers of Christ. We're known. As people who say to live is Christ and to die is gain. Jesus is Lord. Something's happened on the inside. And I think people sheltered from church and from God's word often are at a disadvantage. So I'm not saying all of the masses and all of the shouts of Hosanna are all insincere. And I'm not saying people weren't being transformed by the witness of Christ. But I am saying that the crowds by and large were very fickle if you read the end of the story, and if you read Christ's commentary on them, look at verse 41. This is where Jerusalem scorns the Lord. It says, when he, Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. And saying, would that you, even you had known on this day, the things that make for peace now they are hidden from your eyes. What is Jesus doing here? Jesus is doing the very opposite thing that I would assume he would have done had I not read the full context of Luke 18. I would assume Jesus would be going, Hosanna, Hosanna, yes, I am the Savior. I'm so glad you're quoting God's word on my behalf and laying out the red carpet for me and waving palm branches. And I'm so glad that the crowds are into this. Yes, I reign, I wrote. That is not what Jesus is doing. Literally, it says he wept. He wailed. He went into kind of an uncontrollable sobbing on the cult. As he's going into Jerusalem, he's weeping over the masses. He's weeping over the city. Why? Because he realizes that their worship by and large is superficial and that they are blind to who Jesus really is. Who he really is. He understands that they do not have eyes that see. That's what's going on. Many of the people in our culture will see Jesus, but not really see Jesus. And Matthew 7 says that many one day will prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What is this? What is blindness? It's such a terrible condition because you can give lip service and not really be a believer at all. He's predicting something's going to happen. A judgment is going to happen because of this. Look at verse 43. For the days will come upon you. When your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You didn't get it. You didn't see that I came for you. And this is AD 33. In a few more years, AD 70, this prophecy was fulfilled where the Roman Empire raised the city of Jerusalem under the command of their commander, Titus. He laid siege to the city, he surrounded it. April the 9th, Titus cut off supplies, trapping thousands of thousands in the city during the Passover feast. And the Roman army built embankments around the city, holding it captive and gradually starved it, finally overthrowing it. By the fall season, Jesus saw this and he wept. Is that where the text leaves us? I can't leave us there. We can't finish Palm Sunday that way. Well, Luke 19 doesn't finish that way either. If you cross-reference, if you cross-reference Mark 11, verse 11, it says that Jesus visited the temple the night that he rode in on the donkey. Mark 11, 11, he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany Into the 12. That's just a curious little white space, like um, insertion into Luke's account. Jesus went in that night and went into the temple and he looked around. What was he doing? He was surveying the spiritual conditions of things, condition of things. And he was seeing the money changers, and he was seeing that people weren't truly worshiping the Lord after all. He was confirming the superficiality of what was going on, and he was not pleased. Now pick back up at Luke 19, verse 45. It says, And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer but you have made it a den of robbers. Stop there. Jesus' goal was not to be celebrated. He was riding in to fulfill precise prophecy. He doesn't parade around the city. He doesn't keep things going. He goes right to the temple to check it out. And he returned to the temple, but why did he go? R.C. Sproul says something very unique about this. He's referencing in the Old Testament how Ezekiel had had a vision of the glory of God that had departed from the temple some 600 years before this moment. And then how the glory from the vision of Ezekiel ascended 300 feet to rest on the top of the Mount of Olives. And he ties that together with this event where Jesus then mounts The foal of a donkey and rides as the glory of God down the Mount of Olives and returns to the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus is the glory of God returning. Sproul says, it's a supreme irony. 586 BC, Ezekiel saw the glory of God leave the temple, leave the holy city and ascend to Bethany on the Mount of Olives at the triumphal entry. The one whom the scriptures defined as the brightness of God's glory, descended from Bethany and to the Mount of Olives, entered the east gate of the holy city and went to the temple. Why? Well, again, it brought accountability. They were being idolatrous. And so the Lord brought some holy wrath. But that's not where things end. Look at verse 47. After he cleaned up the temple, what happened? And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. So all the religious leaders want to kill him. But they knew, but they Did not find anything they could do. Jesus had had them flummoxed because of his integrity. And also because it says for all the people were hanging on his words. Section closes with hope. Are you caught up in superficiality? Or are you hanging on every word that Christ teaches? We need the word of Christ to transform us. Psalm 118, 25 and 26. Again, save us, we pray, O Lord. That's what was being quoted. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The earlier section in that Psalm is really the key element to being saved. It's just a few verses earlier. Psalm 118, 21 and 22. I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. Listen to this quote. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus is the lamb who is king and he was rejected. Are you going to let Jesus just pass you by this year? Or are you going to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your lamb? Who is a humble king. Who in his humility reaches inside your heart. And washes away all of your sins. And enters into your life. So that you can have a personal relationship with jesus as your lamb and as your lion who is your king isn't that amazing that's what you receive worship the lamb who is lord